I just want to address a few things. Some of you may be wondering, yes, I was at the Oakland A's game on Sunday. No, I did not go way out to section 334. No, I didn't even know it had happened until I went on Twitter after the game. In other words, like the sign on Monday night said, you kept your head in the game. For those of you that aren't aware, and I'm thinking most of you are aware because Australians tend to find these sorts of things funny and it's a sports thing. And anyway, a couple people went way out to the most remote part of the Oakland Coliseum during Sunday's game and had some fun. And Monday night, a couple of people decided to go to the scene of the crime and hold up signs saying things like, don't blow it, and play balls. And they may or may not have been ejected. I know they at least had the signs taken away. I think that's all it was. But anyway, it's the sort of thing that would totally make turn it up, but it probably wouldn't get through the censors. But it would probably go something like, if you're at the baseball and you're feeling frisky, save it until after the game. And if you don't save it until after the game, we'll say, turn it up! Your gazy voice needs some work. Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way, I want to jump over the pack and here he comes! Episode 57 of Americans Watching the Footy. I am Benjamin Castle. I am Ethan Castle. We are both in South San Francisco, California. At last, Ethan has returned from his trip out to New Mexico and then Ohio. Weird path to take. Yeah, it's, you'd be surprised how few people fly between Albuquerque and Cincinnati. If that was supposed to draw laughs, it, I guess, worked? I don't know. The people at the counter checking bags were like... Very curious why someone would be going to Cincinnati. I don't blame them. And congratulations to you on managing to follow round 22 from the Eastern time zone. I also had to watch parts of round 23 from elsewhere. I had a work retreat. I don't know if that even happens in Australia. I guess it does. I think the business climate is similar because you have groups like Collective Minds, which is something that you would have in America as well. Anyway, work retreat, nice place, crappy phone reception. Fortunately, Wi-Fi was good enough, and I was able to watch the Friday night by our time, Saturday by Australian time games. And yeah, I'm fully in the loop with everything as we conclude round 23 and the home and away season. And um, we got a lot to get into. What's going to be interesting is we may talk less about a game between Geelong and West Coast than almost any other game, which, knowing us, you'd think that would be pretty impossible, but that was a game with absolutely nothing at stake. 
And most of the other games had something pretty significant at stake, whether it was finals positions or, in one case, a local rivalry. So we got a lot to get into. But first, we put out our round 23 preview after this news had broken, but we haven't had the time to discuss it on air yet. Alistair Clarkson, he's come home to North. I've said before, and I'm going to maintain this, because I've only been watching this for three years now, and just based off what I've seen, I don't know if Clarkson is a great tactical coach. I haven't seen him coaching enough to pass judgment on that. I haven't seen him coaching with significant talent. But considering the amount of studying he's done over the past year of successful organizations in America, I think... If nothing else, he is going to bring North stability. They're going to be functional. And it may take a few years before they have a finals caliber team. But I think the days of turmoil and constant turnover are now a thing of the past. And I think they can finally have some level of stability, figure out the culture stuff, and get things moving in the right direction. Because they've been kind of stuck in the mud for a really long time. Props to Sonia Hood for getting Plan A to work. You know, North are a very young team at this point. Some good younger surprises on there this year. Paul Curtis honestly should have been in 22 under 22 consideration. Callum Coleman-Jones came along nicely at the end of the year. We'll talk about a couple more players when we get into our breakdown of that game. There was a whole lot more news around coaching, but we're going to get to that when we come around to the games of each of those teams in question. And we'll talk about player retirements and all that stuff then as well. We're just going to get right into the Friday night game. I did not expect this to go anywhere nearly as similarly to the earlier meeting of the year between Melbourne and Brisbane as it had. Just between it being at the GABA with Chris Fagan being someone whose tactics I've liked a lot of the year and thinking that they would know how to be ready for the pressure that Melbourne brought. But more than anything, Melbourne were as efficient as they've been all year. That happened right away with Melbourne kicking six goals to one in the first, seven goals to one in the second quarter. It was more than over by halftime, and it ended up being Brisbane 8-9-57, defeated by Melbourne 18-7-115, a remarkable goal-kicking effort from them. Really, the most noteworthy thing that happened in the second half was something that happened at three-quarter time, a verbal exchange, really just some comment that Dane Zorko made to Harrison Petty. You know, a week ago, I was saying Brisbane don't stay composed when shit doesn't go their way, and I thought some of that might stem from Zorko. Now, I think every team needs a guy like him in some capacity. You know, he seems like a pretty goofy guy within the club. You need to have someone who can be a bit of an agitator, be a bit of an asshole. You need someone who isn't afraid to call teammates out on their shit when they're struggling. And I would think that aligns with what we've seen out of him. But I don't think that his behavior fits being a captain. I think there's something about, you know, the don't get too high, don't get too low type that you need as a captain not someone who acts like a punk-ass bitch when his team is struggling. And we've seen this out of Zorko multiple times. And I think it really does permeate to the rest of the team when you see how quickly the Lions unravel when they give up a couple goals in a row. You know the difference between Dane Zorko and Max Gone? If Dane Zorko was captaining Melbourne in that grand final, that Caleb Daniel tackle would have ended the game. There never would have been a response. 
Gon was able to shake that moment off and lead his team to victory, Zorko would have probably just tried to start a fight and talked a bunch of shit, and his team would have lost by like 50. Maybe more. 50's awfully generous. You know, there have been talks out of this. Basically, if somehow he missed it, he made a comment to Petty. Apparently, it was about a member of his family that had Petty, like, basically crying. And I'm surprised Petty didn't retaliate physically. Wouldn't have blamed him if he did. But there have been calls for, you know, Zorko to be suspended or be stood down as captain. I don't think anything he did is worthy of formal discipline. Because it's not like he broke any rules or anything or said anything racist. But I think the Lions do need to ask, is this the sort of personality we want as a captain? Sounds like they're not making any changes right now. Maybe another quick finals exit will make them change their mind. We do know that they won't be going out in straight sets because they're out of the top four. What do you mean? This was their qualifying final. I'm going to count this at this point. Now, this is, they were in the top four going into this game. I'm just saying final starts early for them because we're used to this out of Brisbane. I'm going to count this as their third straight sets out in four years if it does happen, as I expect. You know, I was very tired on Thursday because obviously this game was very early Friday morning for us. I slept for a couple hours before the game, woke up to get myself, you know, ready to watch the whole thing and... I was back to sleep by halftime and felt very confident that I wasn't going to miss anything of consequence. And from a standpoint of, you know, outcomes and things like that, I didn't. Just an indication of how one-sided this game was for a while. It was 81-15 to at halftime. This is a finals team at home giving up 13 goals to two in the first half. A team that's known to play really well at home. Against a team that had already kicked their asses once. You know, it's one thing to get swept by a team. It happens. Melbourne's a very good team. And if they beat you by, like, 30 points each time, okay. But when you're getting doubled up, some serious questions need to be asked. I'm not sure if this is a damning stat for Brisbane more than it is an impressive stat for Melbourne. By three-quarter time, Melbourne had scored a goal on 43% of their inside 50s. That was the third highest of any team the whole year was a stat that I saw on the Fox footy coverage of the game. They mentioned it before they went back for the fourth quarter. I was just shocked that Melbourne was able to get this sort of accuracy going early and they were able to ride that momentum the whole way through. It's the opposite of a couple of their contests this year. I'm thinking particularly of both games against Collingwood where their inaccuracy seemed to just mentally bog them down. Some of it was they were generating really easy shots Some of it was that they were just kicking really well. Again, Brisbane were missing a couple important defensive faces in Marcus Adams and Kalamachi, who were still concussed. And that can't be overlooked, but to have the whole defense collapse like that, even without those two faces, with the versatility of Kadeem Coleman in play, for example, is really surprising. And definitely critical of Harris Andrews this year as opposed to last. It seems like I can definitely see that he's fallen off a bit. Again, if they had lost by, like, 30, you'd say, all right, didn't play very well against a good team while missing some significant pieces. You can see how that would happen and how a team, even a very good team at home, could lose a game like that. But to be down by 70 after three quarters? To be down by 66 at halftime? What the fuck was that? If there was any individual effort that stuck with you before halftime, it was probably that Kazi Pickett had scored four by then. 
And team-wise, Melbourne kicked seven straight going into half. Melbourne kicked the last seven goals of the second quarter after Dan McStay kicked the first goal, kicked the first goal of the term. When the Lions got that goal and trailed 38-13, it was like, all right, there's a blueprint here for them to get back into this. If they can get it to within, you know, 15 by halftime, all right, we got a game. And instead, they got the next point as well. After that, they got outscored, I believe it was 43-1 to for the remainder of the half. And yeah, that was about it. Oh, by the way, the teams were even on inside 50s after the first half and after the third quarter. In fact, Brisbane ended up plus eight on inside 50s for the game. They had more inside 50s, 58, than points, 57. Melbourne scored 115 from 50 entries. Obscene doesn't begin to describe it, and that's a word that I've used a lot in terms of ridiculous statistics this year. Between the Lions not being able to sustain anything inside 50, the Ds defending well, it was really the perfect storm. Brisbane generated just 19 shots from inside 50s. That's 33% efficiency. Melbourne were at 52%, 26 shots from 50. That's the tail of the tape. Other than Kazi's four goals in the first half, notable stat lines for Melbourne. Clayton Oliver with another vote-getting performance. 30 disposals, 13 clearances, gained 578 meters. Who knows, maybe those votes could end up putting him over the line for the Brownlow. I have my own opinions on who's going to win that, and we're going to get into that when we talk about some other games with contenders involved. Another busy day for Angus Brayshaw, 27 disposals. Love what I've seen from him since he's been moved back into more of a midfield role. Christian Petraka kicking 2-1 from 23 disposals with 10 score involvements. Defensively, a complete game for a lot of Melbourne's back lines. Stephen May with 20 disposals, gaining 552 meters. And Jaden Hunt and Jake Lever with nine intercepts each. I've said, I've consistently said this year that Stephen May and Jake Lever are better when they are playing together. May's work on the ground allows Lever to do more in the air. And another really strong game for Jaden Hunt after he did so much to propel Melbourne forward in the decisive final minutes of their win against Carlton. Oh yeah, Jake Bowie returned for this game too. And we know what happened when he entered the team last year. I want to go back to Petraka for a moment. If he's actually kicking straight, that's really scary because he's going to get some high quality opportunities out of it. Not a lot of positives on the Lions side, although Lockie Neal, 29 disposals and six tackles. Not like it's going to get him any votes, though. Look at the scoreline. Hugh McCluggage, two goals, 24 disposals. Daniel Rich, 22 disposals, 617 meters gained. And then both Noah Answorth and Darcy Gardner finished with nine intercepts. But this was pretty bad from the Lions and puts them in a spot where, you know, for a while this year, I had been saying if it wasn't for their track record, this would be a reasonable pick to win the whole thing. Now I think it's very reasonable to expect their season will be done in two weeks' time. Daniel Rich, by the way, would be the guy that I'd pinpoint as a reasonable captain selection for Brisbane if Zorko does, if they do move on from Zorko in that role. And speaking of Answorth, he's not going to be playing in their elimination final because he got a one-week suspension for striking Alex Neil Bowen at some point in the second quarter. Neil Bowen actually ended up getting sick on the field right before halftime after taking that hit. The other one on report for Brisbane was, of course, Cam Rayner for a dangerous tackle on Ben Brown in the latter half of the first quarter. And as we're recording very early Tuesday morning, Pacific time, in 
in California, Tuesday night in Australia. We now know the result of Rainer's tribunal. Rainer's one-game suspension has been upheld. I do want to commend Benjamin on a prediction sort of in a way coming true. At one point, at the start of the year, he had suggested the Demons going undefeated all the way until round 23 and then losing at the GABA. Well, didn't quite happen that way, but Casey, the VFL team, won their first 17 games and then lost to the Lions. I'm not sure how much I was joking. When we looked at Saturday in our round 23 preview, we did not think much of the schedule. Only a couple games had real finals impact, and they were both honestly overshadowed by the big rivalry at the end of the day. I did not expect the game out in the ACT to be the most compelling of them all. I'm very satisfied that it was. You know, a couple weeks ago I had said the Giants haven't played an interesting game all year, or have only played in like one, and they played a couple of really interesting games to close out the season. No, they didn't win either of those games against finals teams. And no, the Giants didn't beat a finals team all year. But the Giants got out to a nice 31-point lead before Fremantle rallied. Well, you... you, Yeah. Oh, wait, you're re-saying... Yeah. Okay. Before Fremantle rallied, ultimately the Dockers finished it off and turned turned it all the way around to a 20-point win, although they didn't have a multi-goal lead until a little over five... Until... About five and a half minutes left, but the combination of Blake Akers, James Aish, David Mundy, Caleb Zarong, and rising star nominee Nathan O'Driscoll, who I've been hyping up all year, did enough to power the Dockers to a win and put them in position where a loss by either the Swans or Pies would be enough to move them into the top four. Final score, GWS 10-9-69. Nice. Defeated by Fremantle 13-11-89. The Dockers hardly played a great game. Hardly? I don't really think they did at all. They had some big individual contributors that did their part. The biggest takeaway I had from this game was the individual abilities of Caleb Sarong. I've been noticing it all year, but it's a game like this past round where I was able to really put my finger on what it is that makes him so vital to Fremantle's success. And it's that he enables Andrew Brayshaw and the rest of their midfield to get meaningful touches. If Andrew Brayshaw wins the Brownlow, Caleb Sarong is one of the biggest reasons why. You know, Sarong's been a guy that I've known as a good player and won goal of the year last year, but I haven't ever really gone in depth on his game. Just thought of him as a good player who puts up pretty consistent numbers. And he was everywhere in this game, not just getting to the ball, finished with 32 disposals and 11 clearances, also a goal, a behind, and eight score involvements, and he was one of the biggest reasons the Dockers won this game, but James H., his fourth quarter was awesome. He set up Lockie Schultz for a goal to extend the lead to seven, then his long handball to David Mundy started a sequence that led to a Michael Walters goal, and that was really the game. Some good back-and-forth sequences before that, after the Dockers had kind of closed the gap. They tied it up before the halfway point of the third quarter. Teams kind of went back and forth with nobody leading by more than seven until Jordan Clark scored from 58 off a long handball sequence. That gave the Dockers lead with 11.04 left, 69-68. Nice again. And they'd never relinquish it. That said, some issues for Fremantle, I think, are starting to pop up. I don't think they can win against a finals caliber team just playing everyone else's game. If they're going to beat finals teams, they're going to have to play their style. 
when they play everyone else's game, they're a good team. They're not good enough to beat the best. They're good enough to beat teams like GWS. They're good enough to come out of a 31-point hole to beat a team like GWS. But against any of the other seven finals teams, that's not going to cut it. They're going to have to go back to playing their pressure style in order to win those games. Also, I know he ended up with 10 intercepts, but I thought it was a really lousy game from Brennan Cox. Turnovers, not being able to hold on to the ball, especially early on. He was able to get important intercepts when it mattered in the fourth, but his first three quarters, three plus quarters, honestly, left a lot to be desired. And I just thought the Fremantle defense was lax on a couple of occasions. There's a couple of goals that made me think, why was someone not closer to that guy? There was one goal where Hayden Young was standing behind the line. It's weird because usually they're a team that's so structurally sound. And it's not like the Giants did a whole bunch of things that we didn't expect from them. I will note, Stephen Canelio and Tim Taranto had a couple of quieter performances, but Sam Taylor is one of the top intercept defenders in the game. If you had to ask, you know, for the short list of elite intercept defenders, Tom Stewart, Tom Barras, Alir Alir, the McCartans, Sam Taylor... Taylor fits right in with them, and as amazing of a story as the McCartans have been, I don't think anyone would have hyped up Sam Taylor like this at the start of the year. So his development and evolution gives the Giants something to really structure their defense around. That's your cornerstone, and all of your other pieces can kind of fit in relation to what he gives you. If he's willing to stick around, I just remembered, he's from Western Australia. Please come home. Imagine Barris and Sam Taylor playing together. Stats of note for this game... For the Dockers, already gave you Caleb Sarong, but also Will Brody a goal, 30 disposals and 7 tackles. His best performance in a number of weeks, one of his most visible ones. He was a huge clearance getter at the start of the year, has moved away from that, but returned to prominence over the past couple games. And when you got 11 clearances out of Caleb Sarong, you don't need Brody to get as many. David Mundy showed that if he wanted to play on pass this year, he could. A goal, 30 disposals, 7 score involvements. Andrew Brayshaw, 2 goals, 25 disposals. Hayden Young, 25 disposals, 579 meters gained. Blake Akers, maybe his best game since the win at Geelong. A behind, 22 disposals, 8 marks, 7 score involvements. Rising Star nominee Nathan O'Driscoll, 2 goals, a behind, 17 disposals, and 10 intercepts for Luke Ryan. We'll also note that Michael Walters scored a pair of goals in his 200th game. I really should have bet on him being an anytime goal scorer. It's a milestone game. You've got to come to expect that. For Greater Western Sydney, Isaac Cumming was their leading possession getter with 23 disposals and gaining 640 meters. Josh Kelly had 20 disposals, as did Sam Taylor. Taylor adding 12 intercepts and 12 marks, nine of which were intercept marks. Hitouts for this game dramatically favored Fremantle. Just 18 for the Giants compared to the Dockers' 45. You could really see the physical ruck work of Sean Darcy at play there. The Giants midfield was surprisingly quiet in the second half in particular. I do want to also mention, speaking of quiet, unfortunately, after all our weeks of saying he should be in there, Lloyd Meek didn't do a ton. You could argue that just having him in there opened up more for Darcy, but I still would like to see more out of Meek. When it comes to Fremantle, they knew at that point they had finals on the docket. When it came to GWS, it was the end of the line for their season, and as it turned out, it was the end of the line for Mark McVeigh as their top coach, because on Monday, Adam Kingsley was named the third full-time senior coach in Greater Western Sydney Giants history. 
We thought for a while that Adam Uze would be a good fit, but considering what Richmond has shown with their midfield running and their forward half intercept work during Kingsley's four years there, I can completely understand how some of those tactics could really translate well to the list that the Giants have. I don't think they really have much of a problem with their list in those forward two-thirds. That's something we've been saying a lot of the year, Ethan. Additionally, let's just keep this as simple as if you're looking for an organization to pattern yourself after, Richmond's a pretty good one right now. Kingsley had been among the shortlist for the Carlton and Collingwood jobs last year. Now he's finally going to get his senior chance. He will be staying with Richmond, of course, through their finals run, but did travel to Sydney to address the players today. (laughs) Moving on from one team getting a new coach to another, North Melbourne played Gold Coast right around the same time. Those games were just slightly offset, GWS and North Melbourne. Two things I was looking forward to in this game. The one for North was the debut of Josh Goder. He had a couple good moments. His first kick was excellent, setting up Todd Goldstein to start a North transition through the corridor for their first goal. North were getting a reasonable amount of chances in the first quarter, but they just weren't able to finish them off. Their last kicks let them down again. In this case, it was kicking toward goal. It was six set shots each way in the first quarter, but North kicked 1-5 to Gold Coast 4-2, and they weren't able to and North couldn't find nearly enough of the ball from then on out. Otherwise, for Gold Coast, I was mostly looking at seeing what Tuke Miller can manage in this game because he came along slowly, but at the end of the first quarter, he had a center clearance that led to a goal, had another in the third, is the type of impact you expect from him. The big individual story for Gold Coast in this one, though, was Alex Sexton playing his first AFL game in 20 weeks, and uh, he just scored six goals. With what we know now about the Suns, knowing that they're going to be losing Isaac Rankin to the Crows because they're not going to deny him that trade request, Sexton's going to likely be factoring in again and be able to put on a performance like that, even against North, reminds me that even at age 28, 29 as of next season, he has a December birthday, he could still be a meaningful contributor in that forward group. There's going to be a list crunch for Gold Coast in the forward line between Sexton factoring in. Ben King being in, Joel Jeffrey, who didn't play the back end of this season. Gold Coast ended up running away with, going back, getting back to the game at hand, Gold Coast ran away with this game in the third quarter, kicking, in the third quarter, kicking six goals to two. North had a lot of chances go begging early in the third quarter. It's something that had happened for them in multiple portions of the game where they had gotten off to reasonable starts in terms of controlling the ball at a quarter but just couldn't get points from it. And once Gold Coast were able to establish a little possession, they were able to punish North relatively easily. North have been a team that's been able to be caught in transition really easily throughout the year, and that showed once again in this one. North 6-11-47 defeated by Gold Coast 16-18-114, the final score. Team-wise, I didn't have any really new conclusions from this game. I didn't expect it with the kind of matchup we were having, the fact that It is North. I was really going into this game looking for those individual contributors, and I definitely found them in in the players that I had already mentioned. Notable performers for Gold Coast stat-wise, I'm actually going to go more back to front for this one because I want to mention Mac Andrew. He had six intercepts and is definitely looking more at home as he's been getting more AFL time. Would still love to see him be able to bulk up a bit, although I don't know how possible that is given his body type. He is becoming more... He's becoming more ingrained in that 
in that defensive unit and can definitely venture into the midfield for decent portions of a game as well. And that was fun to watch. Looking at the crowded midfield for the Suns, David Swallow kicked 1-1 with 33 disposals, 9 clearances, 9 marks, 8 score involvements, 602 meters gained. All-time gains played leader for the Suns, still a factor as they get to the end of their 12th season. Noah Anderson also kicked 1-1 from 30 touches, 13 score involvements, gained 671 meters. I've been really impressed with his running through the middle of the ground this season. Tuke Miller. Is this the game that gets him over the line for the Brownlow? Who knows with the all the good performances that there were and with three votes perhaps being taken away from him by a strong goal-kicking effort, but Miller had a goal himself, 25 disposals, nine clearances, and seven tackles. Looking more forward, Ben Ainsworth had a goal, two from 24 disposals, 10 marks, and eight score involvements. Brandon Ellis with 24 disposals. I expected him to get a goal at some point, but was willing to distribute to others. Good sign there. Jack Lacocious, someone I... Hadn't thought all that highly of for a lot of the season, but he kicked 1-1, 20 touches, 7 marks at 502 meters. But Alex Sexton blew my mind that he had been out of the AFL side for this long with the effort that he put up kicking 6-2. He played like he had something to prove. Lukosius, you mentioned, he sucked against Geelong. Nice for him to finish his season on a high note. Stats for North, Aiden Core, 28 disposals, 9 marks, and 8 intercepts. He's a player that has been defensively exposed a lot this season. Got a decent amount of the ball this one. Perhaps a little better than I expected from him, but with Aaron Hall not in, he was able to be more of a mover. Maybe that role suits him better. Wasn't just critical of just meaningless kicks out of the back third for North, so that's a positive. Luke Davies-Uniak, who somehow is not an All-Australian finalist. A goal of behind, 26 disposals, 7 clearances. Jai Simpkin, 25 disposals. Curtis Taylor, a goal of behind, 25 disposals and 10 marks. Hugh Greenwood, a goal of behind, 23 disposals and octopus and 8 score involvements. Luke McDonald, 23 disposals, 7 intercepts, 627 meters gained. And Ben Mackay, 9 intercepts. His two games this week were separated by a day and by all of a couple miles, so no issue for him playing for both teams, managing both of his identities. But let's face it, no matter what happened on the field in this game, this was already a win for North this week. They got the coach they wanted. They're going to have stability now. What happened on the field didn't matter. can say it did matter for the Gold Coast Suns. They equaled their greatest win total ever, and for the first time in club history... They finished in triple digits on percentage, 102.4%. First time they've ever scored more points than they've allowed across an entire season. And they are just continuing to build from here. We're going to talk a lot more about that when we get around to them in our So You Didn't Crack the Eight, which we're going to be doing this week as well during the finals bye. We're going to be talking about each of the 10 teams that won't be continuing to play September footy. Just give it a little post-mortem on their season. So both these teams will feature prominently in that regard, as will my favorite team, the West Coast Eagles. I was just relieved to see their season come to an end. I knew it was going to be bad over at Cardinia Park. Did I think it was going to be nearly getting tripled up bad? Honestly, yes, I did. What was there to gain out of this game, Ethan? It was just pride for the Eagles and for Geelong celebrating Patrick Dangerfield's 300th game. And in this game, Dangerfield did the most Dangerfield thing possible, conceding perhaps his best chance for a milestone goal. Had a mark in the left pocket in the middle of the third quarter, 
chose to pass instead. It's nice to be in the position the Caps are in where your goal was just don't get hurt. Jake Cole Jashney did enter concussion protocols, but he'll be back in time for finals. They sat Cam Guthrie after he hurt his right shoulder in the second quarter. It didn't matter. He'll be fine. And they played pretty well with a short bench anyway. They went on to win this game 19-17, to 7-4-46, led by 51 at halftime and 62 after three quarters. A pretty thorough, dominant, balanced performance. Not a lot to say about this one other than that they were just consistently better. What I did love was you could tell they took this game seriously. They took the preparation seriously instead of just going through the motions because they had a very specific game plan for how to attack the Eagles defense and avoid Tom Barras as much as possible. And they did that. They made him less of a factor than he had been probably in any other game all season long. This was also a far better game for John Seglar. He was pretty awful against the Bulldogs, although going from facing off with Tim English to facing off with a bunch of Eagles Ruckman not named Nick Natanui is obviously a different degree of difficulty, but he did a really nice job generating clearances out of his hitouts and setting the team up for quick success. As I said, I'm just glad the season's over for West Coast. I would have had a lot more to look forward to in this game if they actually played more of the younger guys, but Greg Clark was just the sub again. Isaiah Winder was sat. Sam Petrovsky seemed played, was able to get involved in a couple interesting plays, but I mostly noted him for the turning over the ball on a play that led to a Tyson Stengel goal. It was a weird play where that handball was pretty much directly kicked by Isaac Smith. This was Sam Petrovsky Seaton's 14th game of the year. If you had asked me how many games he had played, I would have guessed like six, if even that, because he was so invisible in most of those games. I still think he's a player with a lot of potential who could figure it out. This was just a down year for him and for most of his team. The only other thing for which I'm going to remember this game is Junior Rioli having a goal getting called back for running too far. And I really think it was only because the umpire didn't see him bouncing the ball. Because there were a couple moments where Cats players had longer runs than Junior did, and there was nothing called. For the Eagles fan to say that little about this game, I think it just goes to tell how lost this season was already at this point. I mean, they were ending with the Cats at Cardinia Park. They have a horrible track record there. They got obliterated twice there last year, and that was with a team that had an actual hope at the finals. Yes, remember... The Eagles played the Swans at Cardinia Park last year. Perhaps the weirdest change of venue throughout everything that COVID created. It was weird being so relaxed watching a Geelong game, kind of curled up like a big toasty cinnamon bun. Uh, I'm just a big toasty cinnamon bun. Although I will say Tyson Stengel with a not only goal of the week, but I think, you know, at least top 10 goals of the year. That kept me engaged, and another great game out of Brian Myers. Just 16 disposals, but 12 score involvements, three assists and a goal. Could have been two goals, two assists. Jack Henry marked one of his kicks right in the goal square. I think there was a chance it would have hit the post, so I get why he marked it, and I'm not going to hold it against him in the slightest. Additionally, because you weren't here for that game, it meant that I was watching Brian alongside Ryan, and I had posted this on Twitter, but I wanted to say it here just because it was a really adorable moment. Brian the cat had already come up toward my room. He was looking like he was about to jump on my bed, and I just told him, Brian, let's watch Brian, Brian. 
immediately jumped on and sat there for the rest of the game. Couldn't really ask for more out of this one. Nine different cats had between 21 and 28 disposals. Brandon Parfit and Joel Selwood, each with 28 to share high honors for the team. Selwood also kicked two goals. Mark Blitzov's 11 score involvements. John Seglar, 11 clearances. Zach Tui, 625 meters gained. Isaac Smith, 655 meters gained in eight marks. He ended up kicking one four, but only had one or two that he really should have converted out of those four. Brad Close, a goal, 22 disposals and 10 score involvements. That was fast. His speed is just unbelievable. Tom Stewart, 11 intercepts. Max Holmes, 10 score involvements. That's a 22 under 22 player, and it's a joke that he wasn't even in the extended team. 22 under 22 has its flaws in that the final team is selected by fans, but to not have Holmes in the conversation at all is appalling, as well as not having Paul Curtis in there. He will be in there next year, though. He has to be. Both of them ought to be. Tyson Stengel finished with four goals and two behinds on 18 disposals, got off to a great start. Tom Hawkins kicked 4-3 with 17 disposals and nine marks. Really, almost every individual player for Geelong had a solid to good, but not incredible stat line. Just a pretty complete team performance, and they're exactly where they want to be heading into finals. Wow, what a shock. Eagles defenders had high disposal counts. Shannon Hearn leading the way with 32, along with 10 marks. Jermaine Jones, 28, 525 meters gained. Jack Redden ventures a lot of places on the field. A behind from 25 disposals and 8 tackles. Neil Duggan with 24 and 11 marks. I still really don't know what to think of Duggan, whether he's a real meaningful contributor. I really hope he is, but I was not sold that much this year on him. We'll note that this was perhaps Tom Barris's quietest game of the year. Hence no mention there in the statistics. Team-wise, the Eagles weren't able to generate offensively just 27 inside 50s and only 37% efficiency at getting a shot off. Let's remember, though, Geelong's defense has routinely held teams well below their typical efficiency. At the same time, just being more than doubled up in terms of actually getting the entries, that precedes everything in this case. Geelong at 52, and we're 58.1% efficient from that. Holy shit, what a week for Essendon. And that was even before getting to their game. We thought Ben Rudden had been sacked. He wasn't. New president came in. Rodding was on the wall that their game against Richmond could be the end for Truck, especially if they gave another lousy performance. And, well, Essendon nearly got doubled up. 11 9 to Richmond, 21-15-141. Just bleeding inside 50 entries, bleeding points. Over their last two games, Essendon gave up 287 points. And if there is a knock against Ben Run, it's that an Australian defender should be able to know how to organize a team's defensive unit. And he clearly cannot do that. Of course, Richmond have a formidable attack, even without Dustin Martin in there. Another big game from Tom Lynch. He kicked five. Noah Cumberland continuing his run of goal scoring. Three goals. He scored multiple goals in all but one game since making his actual on-ground debut. And three as well from Shane Edwards in his final home and away game. He definitely has more in him than just one more finals campaign. Again, though, I thought he saw the direction in which Richmond are heading and realized that it would be best for the club for them to be able to play the young group they have coming up. Richmond scored 6-3 in both the first and third quarters. And you can tell pretty much from the moment this game started that this one wasn't going to be close. 
A little past the midpoint of the first quarter, it was 25 to 8 Richmond. Ended up 39 to 20 after one. It was 67 to 48 at the half. And you just knew, and you knew Essendon weren't going to be able to fight to get themselves back in it. You could tell some players were really fighting. Massimo D'Ambrosio definitely doing a lot, had a couple goals in the first quarter and had the potential for a third, but missed everything. Jai Menzi kicking his first on his first AFL kick. Welcome to that club. And then a last goal on a last kick. Michael Hurley getting the last say for Essendon as it should be in his final game. It was great seeing the Richmond players congratulate him as well. He had a really tough journey to get back in form for AFL selection after all of the troubles he had gone through with injury. And even if it were a competitive game, I would have hoped that the Richmond players would have done that. Again, like I said, with North Melbourne and Gold Coast, no big new conclusions on either of these teams. I had expected Richmond to end up dominating this game. I expected Tom Lynch to have a big performance. I'd expected Dion Prestia to have a busy day. And check, check, check. <laughs> Prestia leading the disposal count for Richmond with 31. Had 10 score involvements, gained 574 meters. He also kicked 1-2. He's been getting more shots at goal as of late, it seems. Wonder how that may change when Dustin Martin comes back in, as he's expected to for the elimination final they'll have against Brisbane. Liam Baker with 26 disposals, 10 intercepts and 10 score involvements. Captain Trent Cotchin with a goal, 25 disposals and 11 involvements. Jaden Short, 25 and 481 meters gained. Jack Ross, a bit surprising for him to get a goal. Also had 21 disposals and 14 score involvements. Tyler Sonzi, the first year, also with 14 score involvements and kicked 1-3. And Tom Lynch, 5-2 with 19-5-2. Nine marks, 19 disposals, and that was despite being subbed off. And that was despite being subbed off near the middle of the fourth quarter. Seemed like he had a slight groin injury. Had hoped he would have put up a bit more of a fight to make that Coleman race interesting. But do you think that was really the concern for Tom or for Richmond? Tigers easily cruised to their 13th straight win against Essendon head-to-head. Their fourth win in a row to close out the season. Each of them by a bigger margin than the last, interestingly enough. Brisbane was by 7, Port by 38, Hawthorne by 61, and now Essendon by 66. I would expect that trend to not continue into that elimination final. Though after what we saw from Brisbane this past round, who knows? Stats for Essendon, Zach Meredith behind 37 disposals. 12 intercepts, 8 clearances, 8 score involvements. You could tell his frustration out of the year that was. He was disappointed after he had signed on again in terms of he and the team not being able to put things together as well as, you know, other stuff higher up getting in the way. He was not the problem, though. Hasn't been all year. Darcy Parrish, a goal in 28 disposals. Dylan Shield, a behind, 28 disposals, 10 score involvements and 7 clearances. Nick Hine, 20 disposals and 555 meters gained. The Bombers put up a respectable 52.4% efficiency inside 50, but they yielded 63.8, which is pretty consistent with the way they've defended this year. They've defended? Other than Brandon Zirk Thatcher in the last couple months, it's shocking to remember that they defended with the kind of point totals they allowed. In what was one of the worst-kept secrets, Essendon fired Ben Rutten on Sunday. In some ways, it's justifiable. Moving on to a new club president, he wants his own people in. 
I get that. Just like when a college football coach gets fired mostly just because there's a new athletic director. And if it truly was because Rutten seemed to have lost the team in the last few weeks, if the team had really seemed to check out, because their defense was pretty consistent with the team that had checked out, sure, I would still say it's probably too early to do that and would have given them year three, but I get it. The thing is, that's not what this was, and that's not how they went about this. Essendon were openly courting Alistair Clarkson while Rutten was still employed. And Clarkson apparently never really considered it either, which makes it all the more damning. Your efforts were never going to pay off in that regard, and yet you still went for it while you had a coach under contract, a coach that had led you to finals the previous year. And with a young group, they called them the Baby Bombers for a reason. If Essendon had really wanted to go after Clarkson and really wanted to risk it, they could have just fired Rutten on the spot, and then started courting him. That would have been better. It still would have been premature to fire Rutten at that point. I think year three would have been the make or break year, but the way they treated him is just awful. Is Ben Rutten a good coach? I don't know. I'm not a biologist, but they didn't give him a chance. And more than anything, to openly be searching for his replacement while he's still there is one of the dirtiest things you could possibly do. I'm going to actually scorching hot take This is the worst thing Essendon has done in the last few decades. You know, cheating, while it's wrong, you're trying to get ahead and you're trying to win and you're trying to do the right thing. You're just going about it the wrong way. How you're treating your own people internally, though, that's a whole different level of fucked. And I wouldn't be surprised if all of a sudden this becomes the least desirable job out there. All of a sudden, it's the only job that remains open and it was the least desirable job beforehand Anyway, before Clarkson was announced, before Kingsley was announced, because of this sort of treatment. Would you want to go coach at a club where they might just fire you after five seconds? I sure wouldn't. Would you want to coach at a club where it's clear that there are problems with the structure above the coach? You know, if I was a lifelong Essendon fan whose life goal had been to become the coach of the Bombers and the opportunity was presented to me now, I would be hesitant. Because you start to think, man, this is so dysfunctional right now that I would end up taking my dream job and then it would end up sucking. Would it even be worth it? So I don't know who the hell is going to take this job now if they're just going to promote from internally or try to do a search. But I'd rather wait around a year and see if Port Adelaide or West Coast or so many other spots open up because this is not a desirable place to be right now. And it's not that the playing group is that bad. It's what's going on upstairs. And again, it's one thing to fuck over other teams in the name of competition. It's another to fuck your own people over for absolutely no reason. And if they're treating their coach like that, how do other people within the club get treated? I would love to see just a full-on expose about the kind of shit that the Essendon structure, the Essendon board have going on. I would love to see if someone, you know, were inside all of this And what conversations they really had in this. What was actually said about pursuing Clarkson? What was actually said about the fate of Ben Rutten before that in the first place? There were rumors that he might have been gone before this. Did those have traction? I'm left with so many more. I'm left with far too many questions about a team with a playing group that has shown a decent amount of promise, at least in being able to generate offense. And now I'm just expecting all those young guys that I've liked watching to either have their careers wasted there 
or be wanting to move elsewhere. You know, the worst part of this is that it's not just one person causing this. It's an entire board. You know, a lot of times within American sports, when an organization is fucked up, it's one owner. This is not one person's doing. This is a much larger group than that. And now any potential suitor for this job is going to have to deal with that, going to have to deal with responding to those people. Fuck that. Again, I'd rather sit around and wait for a year and hope that another job opens up. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at Americans Footy to see our reactions to all things AFL in real time. You can follow us personally on Twitter. I am at BenjaminHK01. I am at Castle Media. And the real star of our show, our third co-host, Brian Harambe the Footy Cat, is on Instagram at Cat Named Brian. And he does enjoy watching his namesake play. We actually have good photographic evidence of it now from both of us. Now, I had been the lucky one to be able to focus on Showdown 51, and I was able to relish in watching that game's epic conclusion in the moment while you were asleep. I did not fall asleep watching Showdown 52, mostly because I still had Essendon and Richmond to watch, but honestly, I was a little bit tempted to fall asleep in this one. I was severely disappointed at the real lack of drama in the second half in this one at all. Ethan, take it away. Port Adelaide 16-15-111, defeating Adelaide 7-13-55. The second one point more than doubling up of the round, actually, after Melbourne also pulled it off. That's an interesting one for you, isn't it? This was actually a pretty good game for the first half. Port Adelaide led just 37-30 at the break, and then kicked four goals to one in the third quarter. They actually kicked 4-6 for the quarter. And missed some pretty easy ones. Could have easily been a seven or eight goal quarter. But by the end of the third, they opened up the lead to 28. And then kicked another seven goals in the final term for a pretty convincing win to close out the year. This was obviously a disappointing season for Port Adelaide. But as usual, they beat up on teams beneath them in the ladder. Save for the other showdown and that game against Hawthorne. After those first five weeks, they won a lot of the games that... I would have expected them to win. I expected them to have a bit of an upswing in their form. I didn't expect them to, you know, be able to compete with the top four. But I think I had a handle on what we were to expect from them the rest of the way. I was really impressed with how Connor Rosie responded to his early struggles. It's amazing what happens when he's actually placed in the right part of the field. Watching him run alongside Zach Butters was probably my favorite part of watching Port this season. I was really down on Port early in this game, though, because their pressure was non-existent for the first 15 minutes or so. And then they really ramped it up and basically never let their foot off the gas the rest of the way. I thought there were some individual performances worth noting. Connor Rosie, like you mentioned, was everywhere. Good game for Ollie Wines. If Zach Butters played like this all year, we'd probably be talking about Port as a finals team. 
It was also a really nice game from Xavier Dersma. I will say a couple of the guys that I've noticed good performances out of were a bit quieter for them, but mostly because they didn't have to do much defensively. Guys like Willem Drew and Kane Farrell. But they finished the year on a high note and got to send out Robbie Gray as a winner after his 271st and final game. He finished with a couple of early goals, could have had two more, failed to convert on a couple of easy shots, ended up with 2-2 and nine score involvements in the last game of his career. And we saw a lot of final games this round, but I don't think we saw any other player that was that emotional immediately after the final siren. Like, usually it takes a while to sink in. No, he was he was really feeling it in that moment. Maybe because it was such a blowout that he was able to kind of synthesize all of it in advance. Anyway, job well done. Great career. Fox footy, normally I love you, but you guys screwed up by cutting away from his speech. Especially cutting straight to best on ground of all things. You can only go you can only go so far with actually nah. What? I was gonna I was gonna say something about like when I heard Russell Robertson's band beginning their song, I got a little bit sick to my stomach. And I hate saying this, but you wouldn't do this if he played for a Victorian team. On the Crows side, Taylor Walker didn't score until very late in the game, and it was off of a pretty soft push in the back. I liked what I saw from Josh Worrell, but there weren't a ton of big positives for the Crows. Nick Murray and Lachlan Murphy both got knocked around a bit, but they're in a position where these things can be used as learning experiences, you know? You're playing on a big stage against a good opponent. The outcome of this game doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. It matters because it's your rival. But for guys to get burned a bit and get some learning experience in a game like this, that's a good thing. If you look at this big picture, obviously this season is a disappointment for Port Adelaide. But you couldn't ask for a much better conclusion to what was otherwise a season that I'm sure they'd like to forget. One that I think puts them at a crossroads, you know? I get the impression that they are going to really try to stay the course and ride things out with this group. Although Carl Amon will not be part of this group. He is going to be a free agent and likely a Hawk. He's definitely heading to Victoria. Hawthorne seems to be the most likely destination as of now. It was pretty clear that Showdown 52 was going to be Amon's last game with Port. Stats of note, Connor Rosie wins the Showdown medal with a goal, 34 disposals, Eight score involvements, eight tackles, 527 meters gained. Also a huge game for Ollie Wines with the goal, 35 disposals, nine score involvements, eight clearances, six tackles. Carl Amon, just talked about him. He had a goal on 31 disposals, 520 meters gained. Todd Marshall kicked 4-1 on 16 disposals. He also had 10 marks. Zach Butters, a goal behind, 26 disposals, 9 clearances, 8 tackles. Xavier Dersma, 2 goals, 20 disposals, 479 meters gained. And Kane Farrell, 20 disposals on 548 meters gained. The usual suspects with busy days for the Crows, Rory Laird, 1-1 on 26 disposals, and Octopus and 10 score involvements. Sam Berry, just behind Laird in tackles, just not getting to the Octopus, he had 9 as well as six clearances and a goal from 21 disposals. Jordan Dawson thought he was stiff to be left out of the 40-man All-Australian group. A behind, 22 disposals, 534 meters gained. Josh Worrell with nine intercepts, leading the way there on that back line, which didn't see all that much success with what Port were able to muster offensively with 34 scoring shots against. Port were 57.4% efficient in terms of getting a shot off once they got inside 50 Adelaide just 37.5%.
Crows also committed 14 more turnovers in the power, 73 to 59. The thing is, only one or two of those were, like, unforced. It was really just Port putting on really good pressure outside of those opening minutes. I guess if you're looking for a proper coaching adjustment, there is one. But pressure is something that shouldn't require coaching. Players shouldn't be... Players shouldn't need to be reminded, hey, you got to put on pressure. Any team can and should be able to do that. Port fans, they're just probably happy to take the win and be able to put out of their mind a little bit the thought that they're going to get another year of Hinkley. And Crows fans, they're just happy that Isaac Rankin's probably coming home. That can be a really formidable forward six if they're able to keep the whole group together. It's going to be tough in terms of cap management, but you could have... But remember, Joshua Shelley didn't play the back part of this season. Riley Philthorpe's continuing to develop. Sam Berry's going to be factoring in more and more on the scoring end. This could end up being special for the Crows. And we've said in the past couple weeks that we think that they're in an all right spot, all things considered, with their rebuild. Would have been nice if they had been able to keep this game closer, but they were not going to spoil Robbie Gray's going away party. They did. They spoiled Josh Kennedy's. You never knew. I don't think they spoiled Josh Kennedy's party. Saturday didn't have one game that could sway the entire top eight by itself. Sunday had three of those games, especially the first two of them, but the third provided a whole lot of excitement too. It all started out in Tasmania with Hawthorne and the Bulldogs, and I was shocked with how this game went early on. The Bulldogs jumping out with the first pair of goals, then the Hawks kicked the final four of the quarter and the first of the second. All of a sudden, it was 31-13. to A couple turnovers proving really costly for the Bulldogs with Connor Nash jumping on a couple of them. I know you have really liked Nash's play this year, Ethan. And I really saw why in this game because I think you've ended up covering Hawthorne more than I have as of late with the overlaps. So it was good for me to get the time to really examine them in this one. The Bulldogs did make their way back into the game relatively quickly. Thanks to two Sam Darcy goals in a minute, they ended up leading by a point briefly. That lead didn't last because it was largely goal for goal for the rest of the half. Bulldogs ended up leading by three at the main break. Hawthorne 8-149 to the Bulldogs 8-452. Then in the third quarter, there were 11 scoring shots. The Bulldogs had nine of them. They only led by 10 because they kicked 1-8 in the third. The rain was increasing, but I didn't think that was really the factor there. I thought the Bulldogs just weren't reading the wind that had been present from the start of the game. It's just like what we were talking about going all the way back to round six with the wind affecting smaller grounds like it did for the Dogs in their one-point loss out in Ballarat to Adelaide. A loss which, had they lost this one, a loss which had results gone differently on Sunday, we could have really looked back at it and said, Man, this one point this one point loss cost them a final spot. But the win favored shots from the left side of the ground, and the dogs kept getting set shots from the right side. And I just didn't understand what they were going for there. And I think it cost them at least a couple goals in all of it. The dogs were clearly the better team in the third. They were plus 15 in contested possessions and inside 50s, plus seven in clearances. So when it came to be in the fourth quarter, when they switched sides and they were going with the win, it made sense that they were able to grab control. Ended up kicking three goals to one in the final term. Not a ridiculously convincing win on the scoreboard, but stylistically, aside from their set shot choices, it was a game the Bulldogs did manage to control in the second half. Hawthorne 10-4-64, defeated by the Bulldogs 12-15-87. 
It's a good thing they got the percentage that they did because they ended up just ahead of where Carlton was at the start of the day. So it meant that Carlton had to win or draw against Collingwood to make finals. After they played a good second quarter, I felt good about the Bulldogs' chances. And once they managed to put together a quality third quarter possession-wise into the wind, I felt very confident, even with any sort of adjustments that Sam Mitchell could have made. I've said it so many times, this has still been a really good year for Hawthorne. They're doing a lot of things right. They're going in the right direction. Development's good. They have a damn good coach. I was wondering early on, though, when the Bulldogs were struggling, if they had lost, what would it mean for Luke Beveridge's future? And the consensus that I got was management likes him too much for anything significant to happen there. You know, maybe they'd shuffle around some of the assistants or something, but I still don't think he's a great coach. I think his future is in media because he's funny as shit. He's a great quote. I don't think he's a great X's and O's guy. What I will say for the Bulldogs in this win, it was big games for most of the guys you'd expect. Dunkley, Daniel, Trelaw, Dale, Richards, Smith. Oh, wait, that was Rourke Smith, not Bailey. That's only the second time all year. The other being Riley Garcia against the D's, where I've been impressed with a depth contributor for the Bulldogs. And heading into finals, if you can get a couple more games like that out of guys like him, this could be another deep run. They have the talent to do it. I was waiting to see how you would talk about Rourke Smith, because if you haven't listened to episodes before, Ethan's easily the funnier one of us. Yeah, Rourke Smith was really important in this one. And being able to get some scrambled possessions out, good in getting the ball off the ground, finding himself finding himself in good spots going toward the forward pockets and making his kicks count. He kicked three goals straight from 19 disposals, had eight score involvements. He's the one player that got them over the line the most in this one. Sam Darcy also did contribute a lot pushing forward. Again, those two back-to-back goals were massive in what they did to get the dogs back in the game. And Josh Duckley had a massive game, if not directly on clearances, of which he had eight, in the possessions that came right off them as well. And when it came down to it, all the forward time that the Bulldogs had in the third quarter, as well as the first actually, meant that their inaccuracy when they were going against the win didn't hurt them as much. It's interesting thinking about really how much the wind played a factor in this game. And you could say it kept Hawthorne in it. That said, I think the biggest thing was none of those bad Bulldog misses turned into that 11-point swing where, you know, you cost yourself five points, then you give up an end-to-end sequence and six the other way. When we talk about an 11-point swing, that's what we mean. And they avoided those. Unlike the Lions, they were able to settle down and get things under control when it wasn't going their way. The key performers for the Dogs also definitely did show up statistically. Josh Dunkley leading the way possession-wise with 29 disposals, 10 score involvements, 9 marks and 9 tackles, along with his 8 clearances. But other high disposal numbers for the Bulldogs, Caleb Daniel with 25 and gaining 539 meters. Adam Trelore also 25. Kate 1-1 and Octopus, which of course is 10 tackles and 8 score involvements. He's adjusted to that halfback role really nicely and, of course, can push forward whenever required. It's good for the dogs to be able to have that flexibility because being able to have those extra pieces that you can put up there, those spare numbers ahead of the ball, that's the kind of thing that screams out at me as being a factor in clutch situations. And when you have him and Sam Darcy's being really capable of that, 
it makes me think that even with subpar coaching, the dogs could manage something in tight games in finals. Bailey Dale with 24 disposals, 7 intercepted, 530 meters gained. Was wondering if Finn McGinnis would go to Dale. He ended up going to Billy Smith, which does explain the minor impact Baz had for a lot of the game. Lockie Hunter, 1-2 from 23 disposals, 13 scored ball fits, 9 marks and 585 meters. Perhaps his most involved game of the year, and I'm not just making a pun when it comes to that score involvement stat. Ed Richards with 23 disposals at 513 meters, bailed out a couple other Bulldogs defenders at times as well. Marcus Bonapelli, do-it-all guy, kicked 1-2 from 20 disposals, 10 score involvements, 7 clearances and tackles each, and gained 512 meters. The major goal scorers for the Bulldogs, Aaron Naughton kicking 3-3, and the aforementioned Rourke Smith. On Hawthorne's side, James Sicily finishing off the year strong with 33 disposals, 17 marks, 9 intercepts, and 748 meters gained. Blake Hardwick as well in the back. 26 disposals, 14 marks, and 8 intercepts. Josh Ward, 24 disposals. Dylan Moore, back to that goal-kicking role. They bumped him around a bit. He finished with two goals in the behind, 19 disposals, and 10 marks, but... This was a pretty lopsided game when you look at the underlying numbers. Bulldogs won inside 50, 71 to 39. They won clearances 49 to 22. Surprising considering they were going up against Jai Newcomb, but they really shut him down. And the Bulldogs with 24 tackles inside 50 to the Hawks four. The main event of, I guess, the afternoon going into the evening started while the undercard was already going on. And thankfully, the undercard's result. And in particular, that slight percentage advantage that the Bulldogs managed to get meant that everything was on the line in car call. And honestly, I should have seen the arc of this game coming. Yeah, it was kind of the exact same arc that Collingwood has followed multiple times. Good first quarter, second quarter, not so great. Fall behind in the third. And then just when you start to tune out a little bit and think, all right, this is done with, there they go. Once again, the winning goal came from Jamie Elliott, this time with a minute and 42 seconds left as the Pies went end-to-end in just 20 seconds. It was Braden Manor to Scott Pendlebury, then Jack Gannon was able to tie up Adam Saad to the point where Elliott had room to run and kick his goal. That was your winner, but I want to shed some light on the goal before that as well. You know, you get this feeling in a lot of games where you start thinking to yourself, next goal wins. And after Elliott took a big mark over Lewis Young and cut the lead to 74-63 with 5.42 left, I said to myself, next goal wins. And that next goal came less than a minute later from Bo McCreary, who hit an insane angle from the right pocket. Not a set shot from general play. That cut the lead down to just 5 with 4.59 to go and set up the memorable finish. After the Elliott goal, let's note that Corey Durden had a really bad kick into the forward 50 that was intercepted by Jeremy Howe, and then the ball never really got back into Carlton's forward half after that, so no real final moment drama, but the whole sequence, the entire day leading up to it, the entire season leading up to it, 88,000 on hand, the Bulldogs just barely securing the needed percentage to the point where Carlton absolutely had to win or draw. And if you want to unpack this game, there are a lot of different elements to look at. Let's consider this. Carlton, usually a good second quarter team, bad third quarter team. They had an eight-goal third quarter. 
They won the third quarter 51-8. to And a couple of guys were big parts of that. I thought Adam Chera played maybe his best game as a blue. He was able to really run all over the place. And Jesse Motlop is establishing himself as a great goal sneak on a team that's got tons of offensive talent. I wouldn't even call him the missing piece of the puzzle. I would call him like a bonus piece. Ultimately, though, if you want to ask how Carlton lost this game rather than how Collingwood won it, you can point to turnovers. They had bad turnovers in their own end during the first half, and then it turned into wasting forward time because you had things like that Corey Durden kick with a minute to go. And I like Durden. If I had to pick my 22, just like could make the list entirely out of guys I like, you know, guys like Nathan O'Driscoll, Brad Close, Corey Durden would be in that mix. He would be on that list. He's a fun and talented player, but that was a really bad kick from him. And it was just kind of consistent with the constant poor ball use from the Blues all day long. Yeah, another way I saw the result of this game coming was from Matt Carlton end. Early in the season, they managed to survive poor second half efforts. In the second half of the season, especially the very back end, Matt flipped. After Melbourne managed to squeak out that win, round 22, I already thought it was going to be over for Carlson that no matter what they did, Collingwood would be able to get over the line at the end between Collingwood's clutch nature, Jamie Elliott now having kicked eight straight in the fourth quarter since round 17, and then ineptitude at actually playing four complete quarters. I don't want to lose sight, though, of the fact that this has still been an incredibly upward-trending year for Carlton. And again, we'll get more into this in our post-mortem. If they can make sure that these last two rounds don't haunt them. Yeah, I'd say somewhere around 9th, 10th would have been where I would have predicted the Blues to be. I just wouldn't have expected them to do it in this fashion. You know, starting off so hot, struggling to the finish, but they proved that they have talent and Michael Voss has done a decent job using it so far. And remember all the injuries they had, especially on the defensive front. I can't imagine knocking on wood that they're going to have to go through all of that again next season. So some stability in the back third will do them wonders as well. Then it's a matter of Charlie Kernow, despite being the Coleman medalist, being better with his approach to goal kicking, not playing on as quickly a lot of the time, had a couple really crucial misses in this one. The biggest one being a case in which he played on. Had a chance to stretch out the lead to 29. It would have been 74-45 early in the fourth quarter. He missed, kept it a four-goal game, and Collingwood scored the next goal. And the next goal. And the next goal. And the next goal. By the way, the second of those goals was from Mason Cox, which, as Americans, we kind of have to mention. He's entered finals for him already. Look out. I didn't think Cox was all that spectacular in his ruck work, but he actually ended up with more hitouts than anyone else in the game. Makes sense, partially because Darcy Cameron had an injury concern in the first quarter. Carlton were able to dominate clearances, though, plus 14 overall, plus 13 from stoppage. They had 15 tackles inside 50 to just three for Collingwood. They had way more contested possessions. Carlton lost this game. They pissed it away. And as much as Collingwood are a clutch team, they shouldn't have been afforded the chance to be clutch again. Again, you could see when the seeds of concern were being planted. And at this point, the moral of the story is, I don't care what the score reads, Collingwood are still in the game. Even against Sydney the week before, like the public perception of, all right, 
They're just a goal away from getting back into it. Unlike a lot of optimism, in that case, it's been completely warranted. For Collingwood, stat-wise, Josh Dacos, 28 disposals, 8 marks, 7 score involvement, 640 meters gained, mostly along the wings. Scott Pendlery, 26 disposals, 8 score involvement, 7 clearances. Pendlery was also excellent in terms of putting on pressure as well. We highlight his offensive statistics because that's the stuff that stands out. But it's the pressure acts that help Collingwood generate some of those chances in the first place. Scott Pendlebury will get to 400 games, by the way. Darcy Moore with 24 disposals, 11 intercepts, 9 marks, and 567 meters gained. Braden Maynard, a behind, 18 disposals, 7 intercepts, 6 tackles, and 546 meters gained. By the way, not as big a stat line for John Noble, but once again, he played really well against Carlton. You criticized him in his one-on-one work last game. He was employed in more of a roving role in this one. Another good move from Craig McRae. Shocker. Noble should only be in those one-on-one defensive spots if, you know, other guys are injured or something. That's just, that's not where he's most effective. A number of notable statistical hauls for Carlton because, again, they statistically dominated. The expected score handily favored them. From champion data, the expected score was 82 to 59. Jeez. One of the biggest gaps between expected and actual score that actually ended up flipping a result. Patrick Cripps leading the way. I mean, you can tell the kind of impact he has in there, especially with Sam Walsh out. He had to fill an even more important role. And he was up to the task with 35 disposals and 12 clearances. He's another case where you could get three votes despite your team losing. Sam Doherty continued his excellent season. How the hell was he not in the team of 44 initially announced? And it wouldn't be because he's a cool story. It would be because he's a damn good player. Playing all over the field, he had a goal from 29 disposals, also seven marks, seven tackles, six clearances, and 786 meters gained. Again, when we mention meters gained like that, it's usually functional, and Doherty's ground game certainly has been all year. Not only functional, but cromulent. You mentioned Adam Chera, perhaps playing his best game in blue yet. Two goals for 27 disposals and seven tackles. Will Setterfield of behind, 24 disposals, 525 meters. Lewis Young with 20 disposals and 15 intercepts, and he rebounded from an early era to have that important role. The two key forwards for the Blues did get a couple goals each, but Charlie Curnow and Harry Mackay combined to kick 4-8. Mackay, 2-3 from 10 marks, had 16 disposals. Curnow's 2-5 with a couple questionable decisions to play on really sticks with me from this one. Curnow also with 17 disposals, 8 marks, and 492 meters gained. But look at the stats all you want. The only one that really matters in the end for this one is Carlton losing because they had to gain points from this game to make finals. After being in the top eight all year, they are now on the outside looking in come September and they've only got themselves to blame. I'm really glad I got to just enjoy this game. That said, I would have rather played Fremantle than Collingwood the way both teams have trended lately. So... From my perspective, it would have been better if the Blues had won, but we got drama. We got another layer to one of not just the AFL, but one of the sporting world's most storied rivalries. This game gave us pretty much everything we asked for. I hope you're not a fan of either Collingwood or Carlton, because this is not a game that would have been anywhere near as fun to watch if you're sitting there in sheer terror. 
this is a game where you can just, where hopefully you can just sit back and enjoy and not care who wins, or in my case, care a little bit less who wins. Some last takeaways for this one, just some fun little numerical tidbits. I know that I said that the only thing that matters is that Collingwood won, but these are season-long things. Collingwood had 11 wins of within 12 points this season. No other team before this had had more than eight. That was Melbourne back in 1989. And also the 0.542% that determined the last spot in the finals, going the Bulldogs way ahead of the Blues, the second smallest margin ever. The only one smaller was the Eagles getting in by less than half percent over Melbourne five years ago. I can only imagine the anxiety Eagles fans had when that occurred. Entering the final game of the round, more eyes were obviously on what was going on at the MCG than what was going on at Marvel, though it was still an important game as St. Kilda hosted the Swans. I'm going to remember this game most for Dan Hanbury. We'll talk a bit more about him when we get into the numbers, but this was his final game. He was a big part of the proceedings of this one. Didn't get a finale goal, but even with the Saints coming up short in this one, I think he went out a winner in a lot of ways, making the comeback that he did to play the end of the season. A comeback that, remember, required a trip to Germany for medical help. Being able to play in the finale against his former team, no less, a team for whom he was a crucial player to Premiership success and a three-time All-Australian. It started out a pretty even game, but the main thing that drew my interest early on was that, oh shit, Max King kicked a goal with his first shot. And you know what that means. Other than King's first goal, though, the Saints squandered their early chances. They had five inside 50s early on and kicked 1-3. No matter, though, they kept pace throughout the first quarter, nearly led at quarter time, but then Chad Warner went on a huge run after being released by a Will Hayward handball. Hayward with another really impactful game. Warner ran away from Jack Steele, bounced once, and kicked a goal from just under 69 meters. Nice. To get the Swans the lead six seconds before quarter time. Is there any player more fitting to get a goal from 69 meters out, all things considered, than Chad Warner? I believe, technically, that was the last lead change of the game. Yeah, that was. Hard to believe, actually, with how the Saints ended up coming on in the end, but the Swans then kicked five goals to two in the second quarter, established their control over the game. They had continued success running from stoppages. That actually was a big part of that last Warner goal before quarter time, and it continued after that. Sydney were also just cleaner on the ground as well. Tom Hickey even, with a couple nice pickups and handballs in this one. Didn't expect that out of him. I just think of him as just kind of a brute strength kind of guy. It was cool to see that other dimension of his game. Sydney were also punishing turnovers. There were a couple notable ones there. And then squandered a big chance to potentially gain momentum again when Tim Membry overcooked a centering kick. The Swans led by 23 then, stood pat until the half, ended up going up 22 they led. The real intrigue in this game after halftime came from seeing whether or not the Swans could manage to take advantage of that halftime lead, push it out, and challenge Melbourne's second place spot to get that home qualifying final at the SCG When the lead was 29 points right before three-quarter time, I thought the Swans stood a chance. And then Jack Higgins got a goal just in time to put it back to 23, basically put it where it was at halftime again. I thought, all right, there isn't much else to watch from this one. 
The Saints are going to keep it close, but not too close. The Swans will win by maybe four or five goals. Melbourne have second locked up. The only real correct thing about all that for me was that Melbourne had the second spot locked up because the Saints, after scoring that last goal of the third, then scored the first three of the fourth with Dan Hanabry involved in two of them. Hanabry handballed to the other retiring St. Kilda player who was in that game, Dean Kent, who then kicked to Max King to put it back to 13. And then Hanabry's center clearance, an area in which the Saints were dominant. It was 15-4 to at that point and ended up 16-6 to in the Saints' favor. Tim Membry marked that. St. Kilda looked to be picking up the pace as Sydney started to appear as if they were running out of gas. But when a bouncing ball favored Sydney off a Jared Leonard kick, Nick Blakey picked it up. And because when he gets the ball, good things happen. He handballed to Hayward, who just got the goal as Dougal Howard's fist missed the ball. That stretched the lead back to 14 with 6.40 to go and managed to stabilize the Swans a bit. St. Kilda got the next couple scoring shots, but Hayward got another goal to put things away, and the Swans managed to hold on, get that double chance. They'll be playing at the G, but you know they're going to have good support behind them because they always do in Victoria. They really hardly have any full-on road games now that I think about that with the South Melbourne base they still have. Final score was St. Kilda 11-10-74, defeated by Sydney 13-10-88. I leave this game honestly more disappointed in St. Kilda than I am anything else because what they managed to put up at the end makes me sad that despite the center clearance dominance they had, we didn't see the sort of conversion and control of play in much of the game before that. I think there are three clear contenders to win the whole thing. And of those right now, I think I'd take the Swans over the other two. Even with how they closed out the home and away season with this disappointing end to the game, I do agree with you. I just feel like There's some sort of factor to them, just the mix of ages they have, the ability for so many players to step up and be that one guy to put them over the line. Will Hayward has been that a couple times this year. I think they just got the right mix and one of the best coaches out there. They just have so many different weapons. And it's kind of amazing that we've come to know so many of these weapons for Sydney and come to expect them to show up in some capacity every week. James Robottom is someone who's been particularly important in clearances and pressure off stoppages in the past month or so. He had seven clearances and seven tackles on a 24 disposal day on in which he kicked 1-1. Ollie Floyd didn't find the sticks, but he had 21 disposals and nine intercepts. Luke Parker with 20 and seven clearances. People get on him for being cocky, but he never lets the game itself get to him. Speaking of even-keeled Errol Golden, who somehow was not in the final 22-under-22 team as selected by the fans, that is highway robbery. Golden with a goal and 20 disposals. Chad Warner also with a goal, that massive one, a behind and 20 disposals. Isaac Heaney kicked 2-2 from 23 disposals and 9 scored involvements. Also with 9 scored involvements on a 15-disposal day was Will Hayward, who ended up kicking 3-1. He was Sydney's leading goal scorer on the day. Noteworthy stats for St. Kilda. Great finish to the season for Seb Ross. He finished with behind on 29 disposals, 10 intercepts, and 7 clearances. Ben Long, one of his best games. A goal, 27 disposals, 17 marks, and 13 intercepts. Jack Sinclair, 27 disposals, 499 meters gained. Jack Steele, a goal, 27 disposals, 10 marks, 9 tackles, and 6 clearances. 
Jared Leonard, 20 disposals, and Max King kicking five goals straight. He had a sixth shot that missed everything, but still, the fact that he kicked five goals once the season was already over for the Saints is just really amusing to me. I know Daniel Cherny, a journalist with whom we've interacted and who writes for Code Sport, also got a really big kick out of it, and I imagine a lot of Saints fans did as well. Maybe a bit of perverse humor for them, knowing this game didn't end up mattering for them on any front, but... I don't know, it just makes me laugh thinking about it. But this wasn't Max King's game for the Saints. It was Dan Hanabry's game. In his final game, Hanabry finished with 30 disposals, 7 clearances, 6 tackles, 585 meters gained, and 1 fuck during his interview with Fox Footy following the game. That was great. It was also the send-off game for Patty Ryder, although his season-ending injury a few weeks ago was the end of the line for him officially and perhaps the end of the line for the Saints as well. He did go out and, you know, take a lap at halftime, got carried off, the whole deal. Wish he would have had one last game, though. He's another one where the talent's still there. It's just a matter of being able to physically endure to be able to get there, and I get why he had to hang him up. You know, with these changes coming to the Saints, I don't know what they're going to look like moving forward. I think their biggest priority needs to be finding another ruck so that Rowan Marshall can roam around more. Maybe they can throw their hats into the ring for Brody Grundy. Maybe to go after Lloyd Meek. This is somewhere that opens up a spot because I had been saying for a while there are more good ruckmen than there are spots for them. Well, when one of them retires, that opens up more holes. And when another one of them, even though he's somewhat damaged goods at this point, has requested a trade, the plot thickens even further. Also of note, sounds like Brad Hill could be leaving the Saints, which would send him on to his fourth club. Seems like he's one of those guys that just doesn't like to stay in the same place. Wait and see what ends up evolving there, but this could be a different looking St. Kilda team next year. The thing is, I like the few young pieces we've really gotten to see out of them, especially Marcus Windhager. I'm not sure how much they can be able to build around that nucleus, though, especially with the rockiness and goal-kicking form that Max King has. So much is going to depend on him being able to be more consistent in front of goal. The thing is, their supplemental players are quite good, but they're going to have to form the main foundation again, basically. So this could be a period of flux for the Saints. But that's something we'll get more into again in one of our next couple episodes, because we're probably going to split our So You Didn't Crack the Eight post-mortem into two parts Before we close out the episode for the last time this season, we're going to take a look at the weekly nominees for Mark and Goal of the Year. Round 22's Mark of the Week was Luke Jackson getting good height and marking over Sam Walsh. Got the knee to the back of his neck. Luke Jackson, by the way, even though he's 6'6", he plays like he's a lot taller and his legs are absolutely massive. Your nominees for this round, Harrison Himmelberg, because... It always has his full name listed, taking an intercept mark over Lloyd Meek, Nick Murray over Dan Houston in somewhat of a pack, and Cam Rayner getting slight leverage over Jake Bowie along the wing, but more than anything, the knee in the back ended up getting him separation, kind of propelling him backwards. That was an interesting one to watch, but I'm going to give the nod to Nick Murray for this one. I'm going to go Murray as well with Himmelberg as a close second. Goal of the week, your round 22 winner was Kazi Pickett's game winner, in which, if you don't recall, he picked up a Jake Melksham handball and went around the corner on his right as he was falling down. 
Do you think he won that because it was the game winner? Or do you think that the perceived degree of difficulty added to it, the fact that he was being pressured and going down as well? I think it was a great goal on its own, but you factor in the situation as well, and that takes it to the next level. Your three nominees this round, you've got Bo McCreary from Collingwood. He took a Scott Pendlebury handball in the right corner and kicked from a really tight angle. That cut the lead to five with 4.59 left and earned a big wowie from Brian Taylor. Wowie! That was Benjamin, by the way, not BT. Tyson Stengel received an Isaac Smith handball, ran to the left boundary, fought off a tackle attempt from Jermaine Jones, and kicked with his right all while Jones was tugging on his Guernsey and Jackson Nelson was closing in. And your third nominee is Chad Warner picking up a handball before midfield, running one bounce and kicking the goal from 69 meters. Nice. Benjamin, who's your pick here? These were all really impressive in their own right. I remember going nuts for the McCreary goal in the moment because of how he was able to bend it really on the same trajectory as the boundary. But I'm going with Tyson Stengel. It was the most impressive overall play of the three, and it was one of the few things that stuck with me from a game that I otherwise wasn't all that excited for, really tuned into that much, despite it being an Eagles game, despite it being a game between our two favorite teams. I'm also going with Stengel because comparing to McCreary's, yes, McCreary was a great shot, but Stengel's whole play, watching those in real time, my reaction to the Stengel goal was way bigger. And that's not because he plays for the Cats. If anyone in any color made that play, I'd be just as impressed. This could and maybe should stand to be one of the top three going for goal of the year honors on Brownlow night. I'd still tip Sam Draper for that goal from the ruck grab going all the way against the Suns, but Stengel's effort should be right up there. As I've said, Toby Dan Kerbis all the way back in round two deserved way more love, but Stengel's is way up there. Also, the Jeremy Cameron goal from the boundary against Carlton a few weeks ago was pretty nice, but I think Stengel had Geelong's best goal of the year. We can debate more about that once those final nominees are announced as we head closer to Brownlow night. In the meantime, our next episode, as we hinted at a couple times of this one, we'll be talking about the 10 teams that won't be playing on into September, discussing what went right, what went wrong for them, what kind of promise or lack thereof we see from them. I've enlisted the r slash AFL community to give me their takes, see what things they point out, things that we might have missed, you know, not being fans of those teams. Tag us as well with your takes on your teams this year. Again, we are on Twitter at Americans Footy. Personally, I'm at BenjaminHK01 on Twitter. I'm at Castle Media and Brian Harambe, who turns two on Wednesday, is on Instagram at CatNamedGrian. We'll definitely also have a talk about the final All-Australian team and other awards next time we speak to y'all. Until then, thanks again for tuning in. And, uh, man, it's going to feel weird not having men's AFL games this week. Excited to see what round one of the women's competition brings. We'll definitely talk about it once it's completed. 